is somebody that I have known for some time, and I'm impressed with her brand of sobriety and how she uses it in her everyday living in her home city of London in England. And I am certain that she will enjoy what she has to say, and I know that she'll say it well, because, as it turns out, Diana and I are her co-sponsors, and she's staying with us for three weeks, and she gets no more food unless she does a good job. <laughs> but she will do a good job, and I give you now Val H. from London, England. Hello, everybody. My name is Val, and I'm an alcoholic. And I belong to the Caxton Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in the centre of London. You know, when I was a kid of about 13 or 14, I played the Beethoven piano concerto, and that doesn't help. <laughs> and that particular concerto starts off with an orchestral introduction that lasts for about ten minutes, and it says it all. And all that the pianist has to do is to come in and say the same thing over again with a few embellishments. And at the beginning of this meeting, we've had the whole program of Alcoholics Anonymous explained very simply through the 12 steps and 12 traditions and that's the orchestral introduction. I think the most profound compliment that I was ever paid in my entire musical career, I was a professional musician, was when somebody said to me, it was my teacher, a professor at Cambridge University, he said, Val, when you play Mozart, it is Mozart, and when you play Brahms, it is Brahms. You don't get in the way of the music. And that I hope I shan't do today. I hope I shan't get in the way of carrying this message of Alcoholics Anonymous. But nevertheless, I learned it through people. I didn't learn how to live without drink, without people. And I have my own experience to share with you, which is unique, and that I will try to do to the best of my ability. It says in chapter 5, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like. And when I came into this program, I was told that I had better find out what I was like before I started drinking, because that was what I would be left with. And that was the person who picked up the bottle. I was a clever person and didn't recognize it. I had very low self-esteem. It never occurred to me that I was clever to win a scholarship to one of our major universities. I thought I was lucky. I was born in the city of Birmingham, which is a bit like Detroit here, and I was ashamed of it. When people said, where do you come from? I used to answer, I come from Birmingham, but my father is a Yorkshireman. <laughs> so I was apologizing for my existence. I thought that the people who read clever things like mathematics or law or physics or chemistry, they must be a lot cleverer than me because I was only there by luck. I was born with a talent 
and didn't recognize my own abilities at all. I misassessed myself all the way through life. I was very dependent on other people's opinions of me. I needed you to like me. I desperately needed approval and reassurance. And of course, when I got to university, I moved right into the field where I excelled because I loved being the center of attention. I was blessed or cursed with an overdose of vitamin I. And I became the center of that musical circle. And there was nothing that went on that I wasn't involved in and I was right out there, right out front. And I was a smarty pants too. I remember uh, being invited to sing one of the lead parts in an opera at Trinity College. And the secretary of the music society there wrote a note saying, unless you take part, I shall kill myself. And I wrote back saying, I suggest strychnine. I also could not accept compliments. When somebody once told me that I'd got a skin like porcelain, I said, you mean like the lavatory basin? <laughs> and I drank at university, um, but it was no problem to me. I drank or I didn't drink. It was not an important part of my life. I was the important part of my life. And I had a very, um, I had a mother who uh, really liked to direct my life and who wanted me to go back home after I had finished my studies. And I didn't want to go back home. And yet neither did I want to face the world of standing on my own feet. I had won my way through, I had won scholarships, I was financially independent of my parents. But this cold world of having to earn my living and maybe live on my own without a community around me that could reassure me, that was frightening. So I went manhunting. And I found the most handsome, the most intelligent, the most accepted person that I could possibly find, who happened to be just a couple of years older than me, and I set out to catch him, and I did. And I swapped what could be regarded as being an authoritarian mother for an authoritarian husband. I had not learned from experience. Another marriage, I had two children fairly quickly, and it was good for about six, seven years. And you see, part of my master plan for me, I was going to be one of the happy ever after people. And in 1962, my marriage started to go wrong. And I was not emotionally equipped to be able to deal with emotional pain and adversity. And my husband started to have affairs with other women, and this wasn't part of the happy ever after ending. And people said, you're bearing up magnificently. 
because I had this facade on, the mask, I wouldn't let them show, I wouldn't let it show that I was hurting inside. I carried it. And people said, have a drink, it'll make you feel better. And it did. It took the edge off. I remember my mother-in-law once saying to me, why don't you come and live in the suburbs? There were wealthy suburbs, northward. She said, you'd be able to talk to people of your own age. You've got husbands like you and a couple of kids. And that wasn't for me. Swapping gossip about husbands over garden fences. Talking about babies' nappies. No, that was not my scene. So what I did is I went in a, in, a big, in, a, in a fairly big way into the professional musical circle in London. Uh, did a, a lot of broadcasting, a lot of concerts, a bit of television. And again, I was with the right people. And I was nervous. I was always nervous. And in one particular recording session, uh, we were recording some Christmas music. I had an opening lead and I couldn't hit the note. And a man who has since become an international singer said to me, what you need is a double scotch that loosens up the vocal cords. And it does. <laughs> Got it first time. <laughs> so after that, before any recording session, any concert there was the lubricant that loosened up the vocal cords and if it had stayed just that way I would not be here today because alcoholism is the illness that doesn't let you know you've got it and I went through the period of 1962 through to 66 without ever getting drunk but I was using booze I was using it to take the edge off almost everything and my drinking progressed. It wasn't until 1966 that something happened that started to make me feel uncomfortable about my drinking. By that time I had developed a very high tolerance. I remember my husband was in the finance world in London and we were doing some business with oil people from Texas and with these great big oil men and I was drinking with them and they drank a lot and so did I and they all fell down and I didn't <laughs> and I thought those drunken American slobs they can't hold their liquor <laughs> never occurred to me that there was something abnormal about mine. At that time, I was a sort of seven and a half stone, which is, I don't know how many pounds, but about 100 112 pounds, 110 pounds, something like that. And uh, I drank an awful lot. It didn't affect me. But in 1966, I had a blazing row with my husband, and it's the first time I ever remember going out of control. I was a very controlled person on the outside and I lost my temper with him 
and I picked up the, the, the dining room table was laid for dinner and on the dining room table was a bottle of wine we always had wine with our meals we were very civilized people and I picked up the bottle of wine and I threw it at the wall and then I went into the larder and I picked up every bottle of every description and I threw them all over the place and Robin said to me you are behaving like an animal and I ran out of that house which was in the, the country we had, we had a, an apartment in London and a farm in Suffolk which is East Anglia, the east side of, the, of, of our little country and I ran up and down those lanes like a demented animal because I knew what he had told me was the truth and this is where the alcoholic logic started to come into play I said, what do they do to demented animals? They shoot them. <laughs> now, I hadn't got a shotgun, but I did have some Nembutal, and I knew that Nembutal plus alcohol would kill. So I went into the bathroom, and in front of the mirror, I watched myself do it. I swallowed 60 Nembutal, followed by a bottle of scotch. And I woke up three days later in a hospital and they said they had took me one way to try to get rid of the booze and the drugs and then they had to tip me the other way because I'd got pneumonia. And it struck me at that point that maybe there was something a little off-center about my drinking. So I switched to lager <laughs> for two days. And then the horror started. I started carrying the stuff with me in my handbag. I was teaching three days a week at the time. And it is not normal for a teacher to be up front of a class with a glass on the desk top full of neat gin <laughs> I did I invited myself out of that school before I got caught my 11th commandment was thou shalt not be found out and in 1968 my husband and I got divorced and on the 29th of January 1968 I remember the date very distinctly I did something that I knew beyond any shadow of doubt made me an alcoholic at nine o'clock in the morning I went down to the off-license and I bought a bottle of scotch I brought it into the house after having taken my children to school because I didn't want to know anything about that day I drank for oblivion and I set the alarm clock for a quarter past three in the afternoon and whether I had sleeping pills or not I can't remember but that whole bottle of scotch went pretty quickly and I passed out and the alarm clock did go off and I did wake up and I did go and get the kids but that was the day that I said poor Val what a waste of a life 
You see, I had come into contact with alcoholism in my student days. I had a professor who was an alcoholic. He was a lovely man. He used to go for to be dried out every so often. And uh, I had a few lessons with him. I used to have to get him out of bed, and he had a wooden leg. I'd strap that on and pour out the black coffee and the brandy so that he could function. And we said, poor Paddy, what a waste of a man. And the same thing was happening to me, and I knew it. I knew it. And on the day of my divorce absolute, which was three months later, I did exactly the same thing. I didn't drink between those two dates. That frightened me. I stopped drinking. But three months later, I went out, and this time it wasn't one bottle. I don't know how many bottles it was, but it was more. And I was scared, and I cried for help. And I now believe that if Alcoholics Anonymous had been available to me in that place at that time, I was ready. But it was not. I was taken into my first psychiatric hospital where I was told that I was suffering from anxiety, neurosis, and depression. And after all the emotional trauma that I had been through, this was not at all unusual. And I said, but what about my drinking? Because I knew that it wasn't right. And they said, get rid of the emotional traumas and you'll be okay. Between 1968 and 72, there is very little that I can tell you, because my life was just a mess. I was hospitalized 17 times more. I was certified as being insane. My children were taken away from me. I was suspended from teaching by the Secretary of State for Education. Big shot, nothing but the best. I'd lost my husband. And with the arrogance of the alcoholic, when it came to the division of property, I told him what he could do with his property. <laughs> I became an upper-class vagrant. I wandered from place to place and from mental institution to mental institution. And you know, alcoholics are adaptable people. The first time I was in mental hospital, I was scared. The second time, it wasn't too bad, and the third time, I knew where the best bed was. <laughs> and I had complete and utter contempt for myself, but I believed that my drinking was a result of grave emotional and mental disorder. I have come to believe that my assessment at that time was true that my drinking was a result of grave emotional and mental disorder. But I saw a homeopathic doctor, and I told him this, and he said, my dear lady, unless you remove the symptom, you are not going to have a cause to look for. <laughs> I didn't go back to him. <laughs> In 1972, I returned to the scene of the crime. I'd made two more attempts at suicide, uh, and I, I was not a half-measures person about suicide. 
I would rather have been dead than drunk, and I have not changed my mind about that. I cut my throat and my wrists, and I had to have a seven-pint blood transfusion. And then somebody had the audacity to remove my bottle of vodka. And I told them that if they didn't give me back my property paid for with my money, I would jump out of the window. And they didn't give it back. <laughs> and I was always a woman of my word, so I jumped. I broke my back, my pelvis, my right leg, my right foot. I was told I would never walk normally again. So I showed him. This is all part and parcel of my attitudes. I will show them. I was angry. I was burned up with anger and hatred. And of course, since my kids had been taken away from me, I had very good reason to drink, didn't I? But during my time in hospital, recovering from my back injuries, I met a doctor who knew nothing about alcoholism, but he loved drunks. His own best friend and professor had killed himself in exactly the same way as I had tried to. This man had succeeded. And this particular doctor persevered with me. And since I have come into AA, I realized that he took me through the best part of my first, fourth, and fifth step because I was honest with this man. I told him all my dark secrets, you know, those ones that bring you out in cold sweats at three o'clock in the morning, the ones where you think, I didn't really do that, did I? And the answer was yes. I was not a blacking out drunk. I could always remember how I'd got into the situations I'd got into, and it wasn't nice. But this man helped me. He kept saying to me, Valerie, when are you going to stop cheating yourself? And I didn't know what he meant. Today I know. First of all, he meant, when was I going to stop cheating myself about my relationship with the bottle? Because I was going to drink again, and I was going to drink normally next time. But sooner or later, my drinking went out of control. I had long periods of controlled drinking. My drinking was just unpredictable. And today when I say that I am an alcoholic, what I mean is, if I took the first drink today, I do not know what the outcome would be today. But today I am not prepared to take the chance. In 1972, I returned to London because I had discovered two things. One was that I couldn't change yesterday. Big deal. But this came as an amazing discovery to me. And the second thing was that wherever I went, I took me with me. And I had not known that before. New places, new people, new things would make things different. But I was always there. I was the constant factor. And I did come back to London, and with a medical history like mine, what was the first thing that you had to do? You had to get a new doctor. 
And I had done some reading or talking, I'm not quite sure which, because those last four years were just a muddle, a complete muddle. But I'd come across the name Dr. Max Glatt, who in our country is considered to be the foremost authority on the illness of alcoholism. And I had made up my mind that Big Shot was going to see him. So the first thing that I did when I got my new GP was I asked him to refer me to this particular doctor. And he did. And when I went into surgery to collect the letter to take to the hospital, the receptionist there, she was one of them, you know, those that sit in white coats on the other side of the table. She asked me why I wanted to see this particular doctor. And for the first time in my life, I said, I want to see him because I am an alcoholic. I had screeched many times before that I was frightened I was becoming one, but I had never before stated it as fact. And that day I did. And she said, in that case, have you ever thought about Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, certainly not. (laughs) And she said, I have been a member of this fellowship for the past seven years, and I suggest you walk straight out of this surgery and into that phone box and ring Redcliffe Gardens, which is our central service office in London. And I was completely thrown. I had not written that dialogue. (laughs) Now, without knowing anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, I knew everything about Alcoholics Anonymous. First of all, in one of my mental hospitals, two sober members had come each week to visit one particular patient, and she was 99.9% of the time paralytic. And I thought, if that's what AA can do for you, I can do that for myself. The other thing was, and I don't know where I gleaned this from, or how it came into my mind, but I truly believe that AA was a mixture of Jehovah's Witnesses and the Ku Klux Klan. But there was this normal-looking female doing a job that at that time, with my string of degrees, I could not have done, telling me that she was one of you. So I did what she told me. (laughs) And I went into that phone box, and I rang Redcliffe Gardens. And a man called Robert answered the phone, a beautiful man who died sober a little while after I'd come into the fellowship. And he was an actor. And in a beautiful, plummy English voice, you know, one of the best. He said, do you have a drinking problem, dear? (laughs) And dear said, not today, I haven't had a drink for six weeks. (laughs) And then I went on to say, but I think I ought to take out an insurance policy, and besides, I have always loved social work. And Robert didn't laugh. He said, will you get to a meeting tonight? 
Well, by this time, you see, I'd started to collect my thoughts. And I knew that there would be one meeting in London. It would be in Soho. It would be in a little basement painted white. And you had to give a secret knock and pass the password. And then, you know, you might just be let in. And I visualized myself with my garbo hat and my dark glasses and my coat collar turned up. And at the same time, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get to that meeting because I wouldn't know where it was. And I said very aggressively, where is the meeting? And Robert read out all the meetings in London on that particular night. <laughs> so you see, my script had gone wrong again. And he said, do you know where any of them are, dear? <laughs> and I simply did not have the presence of mind to lie. I did know where one of them was, and I told him. And then he said, what were the magic words for me? With your attitude, I will be very surprised if I see you there. <laughs> Red rag to a bull. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> he wasn't. <laughs> and you didn't have the red carpet out waiting for me. And you didn't say, Val, we've been waiting for you to do our social work. And you see, I wanted you to think that I had been ten years in this fellowship. My problem was I didn't know the rules of the game. <laughs> I didn't know the format of an AM meeting. I didn't know what was expected of me. But I desperately wanted not to be noticed. And I walked into a meeting of about seven people. <laughs> and they noticed. <laughs> and they said, your first meeting. I gulped and I said, yes. And they sat me in the middle of the front row. And a woman told part of my story. She told the part about the hiding of the booze, the disposal of the empties, that problem. You know, I, I knew that one very well. I used to put my empties in a carrier bag. And I used to carry it round the corner to one of these lampposts, which had a little bin on. And I would hide behind the lamppost. And when nobody was looking, or so I thought, I would put the bag into the bin. And the council took the bin away. <laughs> and I was convinced that they had removed it because they had discovered I was putting my bottles in it. But she told about that bit. She also talked about these nameless fears. The fear of answering the telephone. Fear of opening the mail. These terrors that we as alcoholics know very well. And with that I identified. But she wasn't as bad as me. And I was mortified. Because with my super intellect, I had not ever thought of staying away from one drink one day at a time. And that is what I was told to do. I was told to stick around, go to meetings, and stay away from the first drink. And they told me to look at the slogans, easy does it, 
keep it simple. And I thought, this is for the peasants. Everybody at that meeting seemed middle-aged, middle-class, mediocre. I was sure they were all vegetarians and probably never had sex. I couldn't imagine any of them stinking drunk the way that I had been stinking drunk. I couldn't imagine any of them crawling to the lavatory to be sick. But staying away from one drink one day at a time, to my very logical brain, made sense. It made sense that if I didn't take one drink, I wouldn't get drunk. So I stayed away from that first drink, and I went to meetings, and that is all. And then came the day that I saw this famous Dr. Glatt, and he was the answer to the maiden's prayer. He was Viennese, and he said, Dear lady, what do you want me to do for you? So I told him, get my kids back, my husband back, my home back, my job back. <laughs> Look after me. Take responsibility for me. You have put me into all these mental hospitals. You have never given me any aftercare. <laughs> and when I had finished, he asked me this question. Dear lady, what are you doing about your problem? And I drew myself up to my full height and said, I am going to Alcoholics Anonymous. So there. <laughs> and he said, in that case, dear lady, you are already with the experts. You are wasting my time. And he kicked me out. So I went and got drunk at him. <laughs> and I was on and off the booze for the next four months. Once in a mental hospital, twice in one of the big London teaching hospitals, in heart failure, directly as a result of drinking alcohol. There were no pills involved. I was in heart failure twice as a result of this illness. You do not need to tell me that this is a progressive illness. I know it. When I came to this fellowship, there were no yets for me except death. And that didn't frighten me because I had chosen the path of death. I think as alcoholics, that is the path that we have to tread. That's what it was like. There came the day that alcohol did nothing for me. My last drink was totally unspectacular. I was with some people and one of them said to me, the only thing that has ever been the slightest bit of use to you is that time that you went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And truth to the practicing alcoholic and sometimes to the sober one is an unpleasant commodity and I knew that he was right and that night I surrendered I picked up the phone and I asked for help that was my rock bottom I didn't know anything about 
anything. But I knew you had some answers. And you allowed me back. The man that I spoke to, the ego was still there even though I didn't recognize it. He was an Oxford man, so he talked my language. And I rang him up, and Gwen here will remember him, City Chris. And he asked me if I'd got any booze in the house, and I answered him truthfully, yes. And he said, you know what to do with it, don't you? And I knew he meant to throw it away, and I could not. But I knew about the Just For Today program, so I decided to drink it all before midnight. <laughs> And he wouldn't listen to any tales of self-pity. He just told me to get rid of the booze and be at a meeting. <laughs> and the following day I was at a meeting and I was in bad shape. Really bad shape. I didn't shake. <laughs> I was like this. For the first four months of my sobriety I was known as the shaky lady. And somebody poured me a quarter of a cup of tea. And somebody else went out and bought an enormous bottle of vitamin B tablets that they shoveled down me. And a third person, to whom I am deeply grateful, and who is still drinking, took me down to the underground and bought my ticket for me to get home because I couldn't do it for myself. The only thing that I remember being said at this meeting was the man I had called the night before. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, don't worry, you are going to be all right this time. And the miracle was, I believed him. I had no reservations. Half measures availed me nothing. And I did what I was told. Now I thought I had all the problems in the world. And I was told that I only had one problem, and that was one drink, and all the rest were natural hazards. And when I asked what to do about a specific problem, I was told to stay away from one drink and come to the meetings. And my life changed. It changed immediately. I had that moment of truth when I saw quite clearly what booze had done to me and I wanted to stop drinking and I would have gone to any lengths to stop drinking and that is what I did but if you had told me that I had to run naked around Trafalgar Square I would have done it I would have done anything and my life was a mess but I started to heal, and I started to heal quickly. I started to feel good inside. When I was drinking, I had to insult myself enough in order to stop. I'd got sober, and I no longer had to insult myself by my own behavior. I was told to get a sponsor. So I went sponsor shopping. I was looking for 
the most respected, um, the most loved, uh, the most intelligent, the most sober member of AA in London to be my sponsor because that's what I deserved. <laughs> and I asked Chris to be my sponsor and he told me not to be a silly bitch but to pick on a woman of my own size. So I did. <laughs> I gave her a rough time. And she sacked me when I was 18 months sober. <laughs> but when I was about only a few weeks sober, I had to go into hospital for a very minor operation. And she came to see me. And at that time, I wasn't able, I didn't have a copy of the big book. I didn't have enough money to buy a copy of the big book. I used to walk to meetings because I didn't have the bus fare to get there. And the groups that I went to seemed to be very wise. This was, this is with 2020 vision hindsight. Because they didn't allow me to depend on them as individuals. I didn't have any phone calls coming in to me till I was about three or four months sober. I had to go to meetings to be 12 stepped. They said keep coming and they didn't even offer me a lift home. <laughs> and I walked. And I lived on bread and cheese. And I went to the meetings. And I went into hospital. And I was put, it's funny, I was put into the National Temperance Hospital. <laughs> and I, I asked my surgeon, you know, whether this was part of a national conspiracy. But he assured me it just happened to be that particular unit of the hospital. So there I was, and she came in, and we were talking about the big book, and I told her that I hadn't been able to afford one, and she just happened to have one, which she gave to me. And she dated it for Christmas the following year. And my immediate reaction was, my God, when I am 50 years sober, they will only think I am 49. <laughs> But I asked her where to begin reading it. You can see the state of my mind. It didn't occur to me to start on page one. But she didn't suggest that I started on page one. This was interesting. She suggested that I should start on chapter three or chapter five. And I couldn't wait for visiting time to be over. I thought, well, she'd go away so I can have a look. And I looked at chapter 3 and it said more about alcoholism. And I thought, oh God, no. I didn't want to know any more about alcoholism. <laughs> and then I turned to chapter 5 and it said how it works. And at that time, it might have been my mind, but it might have been the meetings. Chapter 5 was not normally read out at the meetings in London which I attended. So my first experience of chapter 5 was for myself, on my own. And I read it, and I wept. Because it said, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And then it said, these are the steps we took, which are suggested AA is clever, which are suggested as a program of recovery.
I read that first step and that's what made me cry because I hadn't taken step one it had taken me I knew I was powerless over alcohol that my life was totally unmanageable and then the fun started step two mentioned sanity and step three mentioned God so I went yakking about this at meetings and one particular person said to me if you can't do two and three try four <laughs> so I tried four and you know I've heard people talk about the difficulty of taking a moral inventory and I find this hard to understand this is not meant in a negative way I was a very good inventory taker it was one of the reasons I drank I couldn't stand what I saw you people gave me the courage to face what I could see and do something about it and my first step four read like something out of Disneyland because it was done in the form of a life story but it didn't matter it took me five months of writing to get it all down on paper and I took my fifth step which got rid of the garbage that was associated with my pre-alcoholic and my active alcoholic phase my fourth step was also very important for me because it showed me the extent of my insanity my definition now of insanity relating to the illness of alcoholism is the inability to learn from experience and if I applied that definition to myself it was certainly true of my drinking and it can still be true of me sober one of our English writers Dr. Johnson once said the only thing that we learn from experience is we don't learn from experience I don't know whether that's happened to you sober but it certainly has to me the other thing that I learned from my fourth step that if I had come to recognize my own insanity that recognition was due to nothing within myself therefore it had come from outside myself and I came to believe and I have power that I now choose to call God and it is not a Christian God it's not a Muslim God it is a loving God that created this universe in which I have a right to be when I was drinking I didn't have any rights to be anywhere today I only have one right in my own opinion and that is to be myself that is my right I have no rights over you or anybody but that I can be and when I taken my fifth step my sponsor said after step five comes step six and seven if you haven't taken these steps be careful of them I have found that whenever I have prayed for a defect to be removed 
I've had plenty of opportunities to try to do something about it. Because God hasn't lifted these things out of me, what he gives me is the ability to recognize them and to take some action on them. The amend steps right from the word go, I loved. Oh, I did some big shot amends. I counted around to people and told them how desperately sorry I was that I'd done this or that or the other and one of them turned around to me and said, who the hell do you think you are? That you could do so much damage to anybody else. They say that the alcoholic lives in a world of exaggeration and distortion, as is in the big book. And I believe that's true. I had damaged myself extensively and my family, my children in particular. And I was not allowed to make amends to them to begin with because they were kept from me. I did not see my children until I was over a year in this program. And then I had to take legal action to get proper access to them and I took it. I didn't have to go to court but I handed over to the higher power of the law. I found lots of higher powers in a Steps 10, 11 and 12 for me are the maintenance steps of my sobriety. I did not enjoy doing my proper fourth step and the subsequent many fourths and fifths that I have had to take because of the backlog of things that I have left unattended to on a daily basis and I'm a coward. Step 10 is the step that recognizes my humanity, that I am not perfect. Mind you, if you had told me that in my first year of sobriety, I would have agreed with you outside, but inside, oh no. When it says no one amongst us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles, I used to read that out at meetings. And inside myself, I used to think, but I'm doing it. And I believed it. And I was about two years sober before I discovered that I had a mental illness. And life has been good to me. I met somebody in AA and we formed a relationship and we've been together for five years. And he was sober and I was sober when we met. I watched him nearly drink himself to death and I stayed sober. And last year he had a massive stroke and I stayed sober and I had rejections from my ex-husband and rejections from my children and I stayed sober all the things for which I drank have happened to me and you people have taught me how to deal with them you've taught me how to conduct myself today I am given the grace of sobriety not the disgrace of drunkenness. There is nothing funny about a drunken woman. There is nothing funny about that creature wearing a short nightdress with a Macintosh over, going round to the grocery store which opens at 8 o'clock in the morning, waiting for the doors to open to go in to buy whatever and not being able to wait 200 yards before taking the top off the bottle and drinking. There is nothing funny.
and yet I can laugh. I took my first chair when I was about 12 weeks sober and it was in Pentonville Prison in London. And when I was describing my suicide attempts there, when it came to the third one, I remember saying, I suppose I was a bit eccentric. <laughs> and that's what they did too, these convicted men. They roared with laughter and I laughed with them. And that was good. I wanted happy sobriety. And I came into this program a raging atheist. But the people who I wanted to be like all talked about God very comfortably. So I had to change. And I have changed. My life has changed and I have had very little to do with it. The universe unfolds itself as it should. And I can work what I have been taught is my platter theory which is probably my step 11 which is dealing with what is on my plate today no more, no less do my best if I can and leave the results to God and in this beautiful 12th step of ours I was given a promise I was given a result The result of taking these 11 steps was a spiritual awakening. And I have tried to carry this message to other alcoholics. And they have given me far more back than I have given them. And I have tried to practice these principles in all my affairs. And sometimes I have been very bad at it. But there's always lovely step 10 to fall back on. And life is beautiful. If you had told me when I came into this fellowship on the 19th of November, 1972, that I would be 6,000 miles from home with many people whom I had never met who were my friends, I would have thought you'd be nuts. But I'm here. And it's the right place for me to be today. Andrew is being taken care of at home by AA friends and my family. I have formed beautiful relationships with my children and have watched them grow. And have watched them develop their own support systems through my experience of this program. The support systems that I lacked that predisposed me to the illness of alcoholism or some other neurotic disorder. And I have made many friends. And I heard it said in London, because I do love everybody in AA, but some of you I actually like too. I remember an old member saying, and I got sober, with the help of many of you and in spite of some of you. <laughs> and how it is today. I woke up this morning and I read my Just For Today book. 
and it said something about not making impressions when we speak. I am here talking to myself to reaffirm my commitment to this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and my oneness with you as alcoholics. I have learned a little about myself today and if something that I have said is helpful to you, that is beautiful, but it is not necessary. You do not have to approve of me so much anymore. It is still lovely to be patted on the back and to be told that I'm doing well. I'm still a child in many ways. But when I came to this fellowship, you did not deflate my ego. Booze had done that for, for me. You reassured me. You stood by me in the tough times. And we've had fun. I thought that being sober was going to be dull. I had visions of washing the car on Saturday mornings. Sitting behind a grey desk with a grey dent telephone looking out of square windows onto a square world. And I do sit behind a grey desk with a grey telephone and a square window. But my world is within my spiritual growth. Because I have to prepare myself for what might happen next. And that I don't know. But I do know that if I wait until things are necessary in A, it might be too late. The steps are there to be done, and I can see that the order is logical now. But I did not do them that way. So I've simply shared my experience of the downward path, and the path of hope, and love, and beauty, and friendship, which is the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.